Welcome back to Hedging the Bet with Handwork and Rec. And JB is back, baby. Let's give a round of applause to JB. Yeah! Get back, boy. Happy to be back. We told him to come back, and he came back. Yes, sir. He's like a golden retriever. Look at him. (laughs) Fetch, bye. He came back. He was on a side job. Now he's back in the studio. Yeah, so we got an exciting episode today. We are in the Final Four. It is finally here, and it is the craziest Final Four that I think we have ever seen seed-wise. And before we get into the individual matchups, we have not only the freakiest Final Fours of all time, but we have some other topics that we want to cover. But the first topic is the freakiest Final Fours, and I'll hand it over to JB and Rec to break those top four freakiest Final Fours down, and I'll start with my man b Rec. At number one, we're going to have to go with 2014. And here's why I say that. 2014 saw a seven-seed UConn, a one-seed Florida, a two-seed Wisconsin, and an eight-seed Kentucky. UConn and Florida played to a 10-point game. UConn came out on top. Kentucky and Wisconsin played to a one-point game. And then on top of that, UConn won over Kentucky 60-54, to which means that the championship was comprised of a seven-seed and an eight-seed, the 7-1. So that's my number one. Jet, what do you think? At number one, I got 2011, featuring 11-seeded VCU, 8-seeded Butler, 4-seeded Kentucky, and 3-seeded UConn. We all know how that came down, UConn beating Butler in what was probably the worst national championship game of all time. Agreed. Yeah, I would agree with that, too. Um, I think 2011 is, is my second, probably, yeah. Number two? Do you guys have a second one? Well, I said... 2011, um, what Jed just said as his top rated. So I'll go ahead to number three, which I would say is probably 1980, the year after the initial ranking came out in terms of seeding. Number two seed Louisville, number eight seed UCLA, number six seed Purdue, and number five Iowa. Louisville won 82-72, or 80-72, rather, over Iowa. UCLA won, so that meant that the championship was a two-seed against an eight-seed. Now, of course, what we know about UCLA is that they were a juggernaut for the 60s, 70s, and then into the 80s. This was a little bit on their downturn. We see that they made an eight-seed that year, but still only lost the national championship as an eight seed by five to Louisville, the Cardinals coming away 59-54. Yeah, so I actually have 1980 at number two for me. But then skipping ahead to number three, I got 2000 featuring one-seeded Michigan State, five-seeded Florida, and then two eight-seeds in Wisconsin and North Carolina. Um, Obviously, Michigan State came out on top, so that was probably why it was not ranked higher because a one-seed won it all. But that's where I have that. And uh, number four for you guys? Yeah, with four. And this is funny, Jed. We're just kind of volleying back and forth with a little bit of the the same years just at a different pace. I'm going to go with 2000 here. And the reason I'm going to do that is the national semifinals, the final four, were both decided by 12 points. And then the final was decided by 13. With the first couple that we listed that were single-digit wins, 
and even wins by just as few as one point. Um, and that's where I'm going to stick. The other reason that this one jumps out at me is the, the least of the ones we've mentioned is because the championship was amidst the two highest seeds that we had left at one and five with Michigan State and Florida, respectively. So that's why I would go with that. So, frankly, I'm very happy to see that I have a different one here listed at four. I got 2006. No one seed was featured in this. You had two-seeded UCLA, three-seeded Florida, who became the national champions, four-seeded LSU, and 11-seeded George Mason. And this one's just really special to me, honestly, because of the path George Mason took to get there. They had three blue blood victories on that path to the Final Four. So, just a crazy tournament overall, seeing them make it there. Yeah, that's a great list, guys. Uh, I'll just tell you my number one. I think my number one is probably 2011 with uh, number 11 VCU, number eight Butler, and then four Kentucky, and then UConn was a three seed with Kemba Walker that ended up winning the national championship. And yeah, probably the worst national championship of all time. The final score was like 53 to 41. And I think Butler was like, they shot like 18% from the field in that title game, which wah, is like wah, wah. awful. Butler seems to always make it there and then choke yeah. once they get there. Yeah, they had that uh, 2010 year with Gordon Hayward where he almost uh, hit, hit the half-court half court shot. Yeah. And you know what I was noticing when looking at these is who is the one name that we've seen twice before when things get murky, they're rising to the occasion, winning the national championship. Both times when the Final Four is just bizarre is UConn. Yeah. Yep. Now, does that say anything about this year? We'll get to that later in the show, but it might. Yeah, but that was a great Final Four 2011. I loved, uh, just to mention, VCU. That was a great story with Shaka Smart, their run as well. Uh, And then we're going to move on to our next segment, which is the Miami Miracle, the fifth seed Miami Hurricanes are in the Final Four for the first time ever, and they are in the Final Four mainly because of how well they worked the transfer portal um, last uh, last year. So, uh, B-Rec, uh, would you like to tell us about Miami and how they've done it in the transfer portal? Yeah, yeah. It's just incredible. I mean, we've seen a few stories of this this type of thing where you revamp and revitalize your roster using pieces that come from around the country who are from international from America and right, wrong or indifferent. It works. We saw it with Kansas state too. They made their run under Jerome Tang in his first year with a whole ton of new pieces and it's proven to work. It's similar to like the one and done recruitments that come out of high school in that you get a guy who's on the the back end of his career experience excuse me, he's tremendously experienced and has proven himself at a different level of play. With Miami and Coach Larinaga, I'm a little bit surprised, honestly, that such a old world and old-minded head coach who's been there, done that over many years, was so quick to make that adjustment in the, the new day of NIL and everything that that means for a program. But Clearly, I mean, Miami is attractive because Miami has South Beach. Miami has a storied program. They have a whole lot of NIL initiatives and money that can be thrown out there. They have a a women's program who's also made an Elite Eight run with the Cavender Twins, who are two of the highest paid women athletes 
in collegiate sports now. So as we get into it, the nitty gritty for Miami, Jordan Miller came from George Mason. This year he's averaging 15.4, 6.1, and 2.7 assists. Norchad Omier, who was missing for a few games right at the tail end of the season, but he's been impressive since he's come back. He's from Arkansas State. He averaged 13.3 and 10.1 with also 1.3 assists. And then Nigel Pack from Kansas State. Here's where it gets ironic. Kansas State does what they did this year under Tang, but even lost Nigel Pack. And all he's done is average 14 at 13.8, right around that 14 threshold. 2.7 boards and 2.4 assists. He's been fantastic. Now, the other thing that that isn't listed, obviously, as a transfer in or a, a added plus to their roster, but one thing they, they did to, to maintain is they held on to Isaiah Wong, who was threatening to transfer, but they were able to lure him back in. So with Wong and these three who all transferred in from George Mason, Arkansas State, and Kansas State, obviously the biggest of those programs being KSU out of the Big 12, now they're here in the Final Four. And it makes you wonder, is that the new era of the one and done, where it's the transfers? Are we going to rely on high school recruiting any longer, which we'll talk about here in, in a couple segments, but Miami certainly is a miracle. It's interesting to see, uh, you mentioned how he's gone back to George Mason. Larinaga is almost like he's gone back to his roots of when he was at George Mason, and he led that team in uh, 2006 to the Final Four. But what you mentioned about Larinaga going into the transfer portal and um, – getting these guys it seems to have worked out and we've seen like these coaches like Tom Izzo, Roy Williams, Coach K, two of them retired who um they're kind of hesitant about using the transfer portal and some of the NIL dealings uh and we've seen a a very well experienced coach in Larinaga um say yeah I'm going to I'm going to take advantage of the transfer portal and I'm going to go get these guys and it seems to have worked out as we now have Miami in the final four and moving on to the San Diego state part of things. We have Brian Dutcher. Uh, Brian, would you like to tell us about Brian Dutcher and the San Diego state Aztecs? I would, I certainly would. San Diego state of course has made a, a monumental run for their program. They're another one of those that's seeing their first final four this season and Really, what I find unique about this is that they've been building and building and building for the better part of 25 years across the 10 years of Steve Fisher and Dutcher. But here's what's interesting, I think, for us three guys particularly, is that Dutcher is from Alpena, Michigan, originally. He's the son of an ex-Eastern Michigan head coach, but it doesn't end there. He was the associate at Michigan during the Fab Four years from 1989 to 1998 and was one of the leaders and truly, truly vital in recruiting the Fab Five. They say he's solely responsible for recruiting Juwan Howard for the most part. And then, yeah, of course, with Steve Fisher, the shared vision, using some of the the same tactics and, and the 
accolades that he earned from Michigan. He lured Kawhi Leonard to SDSU as the assistant there. And he's been the head now at San Diego State for six years. And every single year, he's won 21 or more games. So it's been quite the life cycle at the um, top ranks for for Dutcher in collegiate basketball. But I thought it was really cool for us because he's a Michigan guy, born and raised, and um, was a part of the program down the road and their success for the better part of a decade. And um, then, you know, moves out west and is doing this. But that's another thing, you know. We're seeing that head coaches are plug and play. And uh, just like players are. They're really, you know, pieces that fit into a puzzle. They're key cogs. And with Dutcher, it's been more of the same. The Mountain West isn't always easy. There are quite a few teams who can mount a trouble there but he's found a way to navigate the waters and make tournaments and now finally they're seeing a breakthrough yeah before this tournament we were talking about like uh at least the narrative nationwide has been like how bad the mountain west has been in the tournament and san diego state they've just totally like been carrying the mountain west this year and it's gone all the way to the final four so just an excellent job that brian dutcher and uh, San Diego State have done this year, and they have an opportunity to beat Florida Atlantic and play for a national championship. And then moving on, we're going to talk about a team that didn't make the Final Four, but they had a great year. It's the Texas Longhorns. They announced a couple uh, days ago that they are going to stick with Rodney Terry, and he did a great job taking over for Chris Beard and really just keeping this Texas team organize and playing together it easily could have fallen apart and Rodney Terry did a great job this year he went 22 and 8 so what can you tell us about Rodney Terry and what do you see in the future for him and this Texas Longhorns uh, program well I think they're in really good hands and and one of those reasons is uh, something we'll talk about here in a couple minutes but Ron Holland who was in the McDonald's All-American game just last night is uh, the newest heralded Texas recruit who's drawing a lot of attention for good reason but you know if you're Texas and you start the year as you do you win 10 games quickly uh, in front of most programs in the country and then you're you know the news breaks about Chris Beard. I think there are a lot of programs, and Texas is different because, A, Texas is in the top five year after year in terms of of athletic revenue earned. So that's a big deal here. But also, what we know about Texas is that they have been phenomenal across collegiate athletics for as long as history dates back, really especially in the modern era. I mean, their football program has been is one of the, the blue-chip ones. Um, their basketball program has seen Kevin Durant come through, and they have, you know, infamous levels there. Their Olympic sports are awesome. Baseball is great. It, overall, it's just a phenomenal program. And so when many programs would hit the panic button – and say, we need to go national, we need to look now, we need, 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 need. The experienced and the the expertise of the, the, the executive Texas Athletic Department said, why don't we stay in-house? Why don't we defy all 
conventional wisdom that has been displayed the last years and stay true to our guns, make sure that we bring someone in that the kids are comfortable with and see what happens. And all Texas did in the absence of Chris Beard was go 22-8, and beat Kansas twice, and made the Elite Eight. Jet, what do you have to say about that? And do you think that Texas was right in sticking with him? I think hiring him full-time was the easiest decision Texas could have ever had following the closing of that season. Two almost 20-point victories over Kansas down the stretch, Big 12 championship, Elite Eight appearance, almost had that game too, really just needed to play better towards the stretch down there against Miami, but they really could have come out on top of that game. So looking at it, you know, you're looking at a potential, what could have been a Final Four team in his takeover midseason. I don't think there's any other way they could have gone with this. Yeah, you guys bring up some good points. It's just phenomenal what Texas has been able to do this season, and all credit to Ronnie Terry and uh, that coaching staff for just never giving up and uh, keep fighting. And moving on to our final debate, I'm going to let Jet and Brian, I'm going to let you guys uh, take care of this one. I'll sit back and uh, listen to you guys. The McDonald's All-American game was last night, and I want you guys to tell me what do you think who do you think were the top performers? I know Bronny James, he's he's uh, been talked about today a lot as one of the top performers. So I want to tell or I want you guys to tell me who do you think did the best and when will we hear from Bronny in terms of commitment to uh next year for school? For me, I think I got a top 3 performers from last night. And I think that comes down to Bronny, DJ Wagner, and Isaiah Collier. Um, Isaiah obviously had 25 points, leading scorer, Wagner second, and then Bronny showcased his jump shot, hitting five three-pointers. What do you think, Rec? You know, I look a little bit past that, and this is interesting to me because the McDonald's All-American, it's an all-star game. Yes. Of course. I mean, generically, the most simple thing I can say is that it's an all-star game, which means that the offensive skills are nearly the only thing that's valued. I mean, we saw that final score of 109-106. It's like, man, this is a freaking high school game. When, When you're playing as a high school program during the season, you struggle to score 70 points. But that's the nature of what high school is. I mean, there are still states out there that are playing without a shot clock, and there are coaches out there who are defensively minded, and who slow the pace down, and who don't allow these guys to go just bonkers in terms of of scoring the basketball and distributing and and creating high-level chances offensively. And so I think my first takeaway was just that, the firepower, and how the high school game has still been withheld and or maybe held back is the better term from what the collegiate game has sort of become and what the NBA is. Now, part of that is a difference in amount of time, the 40 minutes compared to the, the well, rather the 32 minutes compared to the 40 minutes compared to the 48 minutes. And of course, you know, that comes with development and, and maturation and, and physicality and all that stuff. It's different. 
and you have deeper benches as you get, you know, um, older. So, so you have a whole ton of guys who can contribute compared to like four or five on a high school squad. But here, I mean, a ton of these guys are going to be in the league. That's the bottom line. And so I was looking at Brawny, who's undecided, DJ Wagner, who's headed to Kentucky, Ron Holland, who is headed to Texas, Collier, who's going to USC, another Kentucky commit, Justin Edwards, then Jared McCain, who's an interesting one. He's out the West Coast of um, Corona Centennial. He's going to Duke. And Omaha Billiou, who's headed to Iowa State. Now, that's the one is Billiou where I kind of say, He's good, but what is his ceiling? I don't know yet. Um, and then, yeah, of course, the the question remains ar- around James, who's undecided. You know, as you said, Jet, we saw him lace five threes in front of Savannah and LeBron. That was that was cool to see, as it always is. The media had a frenzy over that. Um, I really like Ron Holland. I think he is the next player for Texas. And um, I think he showed a little bit of what he can do yesterday, but he has to improve the outside shot for sure. He's a lengthy kid, but the other thing I worry about is his ability to hold on to the basketball. And he can finish downhill, but oftentimes you'll see him try and distribute and make last-second plays, flicking it to the corner, or going a bounce pass through the key that gets intercepted. So I would worry with Holland about, his ball control and, and ability to make decisions at the rim. I think Collier is going to be a great player. And if, and I'm just speculating here, say Brawny James goes to USC. And so now USC has Brawny James and Isaiah Collier. That gets interesting, doesn't it? And, um, Justin Edwards and DJ Wagner teaming up at Kentucky. I'd like to see that. And uh, Jed, what else do you think? I'm I'm curious. Uh, I mean, Ron Holland, like you mentioned, he had a great all-around game, even for a game that's not very defensive in nature. Three blocks, two steals, featuring six rebounds, two assists on top of 11 points. I mean, for an all-star game, like you were saying, it doesn't get much more all-around than that. So, I mean, that's... To me, that's only a good sign of just consistent defensive effort if you're willing to put in that effort for an All-American game. Um, on top of that, with Bronny, I, I'm i thinking he's leaning towards USC. I don't think he wants to go to the shadow of Ohio State and stay under his dad's shadow. That's all speculation, of course, but from everything I know about Bronny's personality through the media, that's my guess. You know, um, I don't disagree, but let me ask you something. Yes. It's becoming clearer that Michigan is making a late push for Brawny. Do they have any ground? I mean, I have no clue. I, you're, I'm hearing this for the first time now, so I honestly have no clue. I'd like to say no. I don't think he, they do. I still think USC's the lead decision with his family living in L.A. On top of everything, I don't think he leaves L.A. <sighs> yeah. Yeah, and I just don't think that's the right move for him. I mean, just going all the way to Michigan. I know like Jawan Howard's there, but and that LeBron played with him. But I'm with you guys. I think USC. I think he just stays home. But we'll see. And as far as like commitment date, I think we're gonna hear um, 
sometime between April 10th and 15th. I think he waits till March Madness is over, mm, and I think yeah, he, I think good. he wants a spotlight around this decision. So mm. I'm thinking April 10th to 15th range is when we hear. Okay, so coming up because pretty soon. Let's be real. If you're going to do what he should do, I would argue, which is leave an early enroll. Your squad has to know. <laughs> I mean, they can't just be in the dark over this, which is what everyone is. Everyone is just quieted. Oh, by... and many schools have hopped out of the race after how difficult it is just to get into contact with him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And, you know, Handwork, you and I were talking about this. Michigan State was in the fold for a second. They were. And then what happened was um, even as recently as a week and a half ago, Coach Izzo went on the Dan Patrick show and nearly accrued a recruiting violation uh, because of his speech about Bronny James. I thought that was hilarious. What can you tell me about that? Yeah, that was something that I think he just got a little stuck up in. But, I mean, MSU, they have a great recruiting class coming in anyway. And I wanted to ask you guys about that. Xavier Booker and Jeremy Fears were also in the McDonald's All-American game last night. What do you think about them, and what do you think their potential is at Michigan State? I think the ceiling is a national championship. I think so, too. I think that if you were to say anything lower... You'd be delusional. Yeah. I mean, this this is a class that somehow, some way, is far outreaching compared to Nick Ward and Josh Langford and Miles Bridges, which became a great class over time. They won 30 games. They didn't necessarily go on runs in the tournament, but... They finished off a couple banner seasons in the Big Ten and did some things, produced NBA players, all that stuff. This might be better, and it might be better because they feel, even though they're flashy and they're high-flying and their NIL value is there and they're NBA-ready, kind of, I feel like they more closely reflect Izzo's guys in terms of what he's demanding, and especially day one. And I think what's interesting is where Booker fits in against Sissoko and against Kohler and Cooper. That becomes a question early. Um, And Jeremy Fears, I mean, played awesome. I know know he wasn't in my list of top performers, and the reason is freaking everyone at this game is a top performer. That's number A. But but the second deal is that Fears still played well last night. And and I know he turned some heads. So you have to feel good about that. Yeah, you got to feel really good about that if you're a Spartan fan. I'm with you. I think the ceiling for this team is definitely a national championship. And I think this is Izzo's best chance next year and maybe the year after, depending on which couple of those guys stay. I know Fears might be a two-year player. You're looking at Cohen, Cohen Carr as well and Norman. I think Xavier Booker's probably going to be one and done. But you could have the possibility of having three of those guys there for two years. Um, I think definitely Michigan State will win the Big Ten next year, if not the regular season title. Or, excuse me, if not the like the tournament title, though they will win the regular season title. Um 
My biggest concern is I hearken back to when Michigan State had Miles Bridges and Jaron Jackson together in the same year, and everyone thought they were going to win the national championship, and they were pretty good. They uh, won a bunch of regular season games. Michigan, though, got the best of them in the two matchups that they played against um, Michigan State that year, and they lost to Syracuse in the round of 32. Um in Detroit, of all places. So that's my biggest concern when I'm looking back at some of the teams that Michigan State has had the most talent-wise. Because, I mean, if you look at Izzo's teams of the past, like if you look at the 2019 team, the 2015 team, the 2010 team, like those were nowhere near uh, some of Izzo's most talented teams. They were based on experience and toughness. And the one thing I like about Michigan State's team next year is it, it it isn't your typical like one and done team. Like we're still looking at the possibility of Tyson Walker coming back, of Malik Hall coming back. So you got those veteran guys. So you got a team that's full of young guys and full of some veterans. And I think that's the best recipe to win a national championship. So I'm very cautiously optimistic of how well Michigan State could do next year. What do you mm. think about that, JB? I mean, I have to agree with both you guys on the ceiling being a national championship. Whether that happens next year or the year after that, one of those years is going to be the year this Michigan State uh, team makes a run, and it might be Izzo's last Final Four run for all we know at this point. So um, I like Xavier Booker. I like Jeremy Fears. I was sad we didn't get to see much of them last night. I mean, Fears didn't even get a jump shot up last night. Really sucked to see. Looked good passing the ball, but... um, I'm excited for what this class could bring to state alongside the potential of some returning veterans. You know, I I know that Izzo's tenure is winding down. That's clear. That's clear. But it's not done yet. And I'm not in the business of speculation, even though I'm in the business of media, which by association is the business of speculation. But I'm not I'm not there. But I'm going to say something anyway that's purely speculative. What if I told you that Izzo's last year was a Final Four cutting down the nets in Detroit in 27? I'd love that, and I'd be there for that. (laughs) Definitely. That'd be a perfect ending. No doubt. Yeah. Can I tell you guys something? Can we circle back to, to these top performers at the McDonald's? So I just received this quote from a, a great family friend of mine who works for Excel Sports Management and um, which Excel just to kind of preface is the representative for Jared McCain who's headed to Duke and, and the first blue chip that is one of John Shires truthfully and basically the quote says this which I thought this was really cool I thought that I'm glad we can use another kind of high-level opinion from someone else outside of our sphere of influence. So, my man, shout out. Thank you for this. McCain is going to be a great player for Duke. His ability to shoot the ball from deep and stretch the floor will earn him minutes early. He also has better playmaking ability than he gets credit for. He is a non-stop worker and committed to development as his regiment starts at 5 a.m. each day. His family is amazing as people and provide a great support system for him to pursue his passion with no stress. 
From an NIL standpoint, he is one of the marquee players in the high school space, and he works very hard at building his brand in an authentic manner. He's a fantastic kid. Now, if that is what the narrative is about most, if not all of these guys, then I think we could scrap the idea that NIL is making this whole, you know, um, facelift of college athletics worse. I think that there's no room for that. If we're still seeing this level of commitment and this level of appreciation for the work that is being expressed here in that quote. And I just had to throw that in there because it's such a a different and unique and as we said earlier, a high, um, highly, you know, sought after opinion, but that's inspiring to me that maybe we're heading in a better direction than the media gives us credit for. Yeah. You bring up a pretty good point. Um, before, great quote. before we leave, uh, the McDonald's all American talk, I wanted to touch on one thing we missed talking about Bronny James and that is the university of Oregon. Yeah. Not one of us mentioned it. Mm-hmm. Mookie Cook was quoted last night saying, "We want him." Yeah, and that Bronny James. That was, I think, one of the first schools that actually like reached out to him was the University of Oregon. That was initially, from what we heard, was right off the bat, the yeah, top of his was list. Oregon. So we didn't even mention that. What do you guys think about that? We know the connections to Nike. We know LeBron's connections to Nike. We know Nike's connection to Oregon. I know Brian does not want him to go to Oregon. I know I that tell too. You that. Well, here here's what's funny is now we have two people on this episode who are from the state of Oregon. Yes. Who are well, I I won't speak for the other guy sitting across from me, but I myself have a um disdain for that program is probably what I would say. Um I it would it would be a chink in the armor if he were to enroll at Oregon. And I think that quickly Oregon would become a national champion favorite as well. So what do you think about the possibility of it? I think it's 100% possible. I know Dana Altman is an amazing a, recruiter. Is a fantastic recruiter. I know that the production that he's put into the NBA the last five, six years is impressive. And I know that that there's a lot of dollars and cents that come with attending there because those facilities are freakish. I mean, out of any of the programs that we've listed, you would have to say Oregon is in the upper echelon of what they have to offer from a, you know, real property standpoint. That in which is built upon the ground in Eugene, Oregon. Um it's possible, but I don't think it's likely. I don't think that I don't think that Brawny looks at Oregon and sees Mecca of basketball and the most the most possible TV time and the most possible you know brand influence that you could have if say you were in an LA or if you enrolled at a Kentucky of the world or, you know, a, a Duke or one of these other ones, 
I would even venture to say that from a basketball standpoint, Michigan might be in a better place than Oregon. But which that says a lot. But um I think it's possible. And I, if it were to happen, I wouldn't be surprised because Altman is a great recruiter. Their facilities are ridiculous. And the James ties to that brand are unquestioned. Yeah, it, it will be uh, very interesting to see where Bronny wants to go. Does he want to go to Oregon or does he want to stay home or close to home and go to USC or UCLA or even like you mentioned, like a big time program like Kentucky Duke? And there's always the possibility of Michigan. So it should be very interesting to see where Bronny James goes. We're going to move on to uh, the final four, our final topic of the day. We're going to begin with our first national semifinal matchup, number nine, Florida Atlantic, and number five, San Diego State. I think we can all agree this is probably the craziest final four matchup that we will ever see uh, in terms of mid-major programs. The last time we saw it was VCU versus Butler. So who do you guys think is going to win this game between San Diego State and Florida Atlantic? B-Rec, you go first. Pause. Did you just say this is the craziest Final Four we will ever see? It could be a possibility. If I were you, I wouldn't die on that hill. It's only getting worse in terms of, or maybe, maybe worse is the wrong word, but it's only getting more extreme the possibilities now are endless compared to what they were. We've seen the gap in talent and in dollars shrink in college basketball, and that's why this is happening. There's nothing else you can say other than FAU is now on the same plane as a whole ton of schools, right? And... Game-wise, I'm going to let Jed go from here. <laughs> but okay. uh, but I just had but I had to say that is man, don't you dare discount where we're headed because this is I feel like the beginning of what is a new era and what is endless possibilities where we'll see who knows in the final four in the future. We shall see. Okay, I mean, I'll I'll take it from here, I guess. Um, SDSU's defense has shown up every single game of this tournament. The most anyone has scored on them is 64 points, and that was from Alabama. Um, so that being said, I don't know how you can argue with that. How can you argue with only letting the team over 60 a singular time on a Final Four run? You can argue with that by saying that Florida Atlantic scores 112 points per 100 possessions which is top 15 in America. Okay. <laughs> and they're 35 and 3. Can I can I get the analytics on that since the tournament has began? <laughs> I don't know them off okay. my head, but that's for the year whole. I think it's worth mentioning the fact that we don't have that number. You feel <laughs> me? I th- because the competition they played throughout the regular season is different right. from what they face. Right. Yes, that, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. So okay. so okay. Yeah. 
when you, I mean, Conference USA compared to the cream of the crop in the country. Yes. Uh, that I understand. That's that's why I asked. Sure, sure, okay, sure, sure. Okay. I, I get all that. Okay. And the answer is no. I don't have that offhand. Yes, but I, and I didn't expect you to. No, thank you. What I know is that that's a lot of points. Yes, it and, is. You are absolutely right. And, um, you know, I think that they have a couple scores, i.e. John L. Davis, yes. who... Could make a difference here. Okay. Uh, but that's all I had to say for this time. So continue on here. Okay, yes. So I think if there's a team that's going to be SDSU, it's not going to be done with guard play. It's going to be done with forward play. So that being said, despite how magical this FAU run has been and how well Dusty May has coached this team to get to this point, I have to say I think SDSU covers the spread um, and wins this game by about four to six points. Okay. Okay. So let me ask you something else. Yes. Was, if that's true, what you say about beating SDSU in the front court, was Kalkbrenner not enough? I mean, we saw how close that game was. We did. That was a one-point game. Yeah. So that could have really gone either way. Mm. What did you think about that foul call, by the way? The one on the hip? Mm-hmm. I think it was the right call. I think it's tough to see a game end like that, and I think there's always going to be controversy, and I think it's tough to know the extent of which that affected the shot. So I think just based on the contact, you have to make that call, but it's unfortunate to see a game end like that. For reference, folks, we're speaking about San Diego State Creighton, a game that ended in just a outrageous outrageous finish a one-point game as my man Jed said but essentially what happened is with a few seconds left there was a drive down the lane line and a floater put up that fell short but contact on the hip led to two free throws um SDSU sunk one and now they're here but see you say four to six yes four to six point Mm. Okay. I'm thinking around like 62-58 type of final score. Okay. Okay. That's that's close enough for government work. I'll give you that. Uh, how about the fact that there's a massive payday riding on this one for, for Florida Atlantic's head coach and Dusty May? What's that What's that number? Is it 100000 Yeah. That's big time. That's, that's a fourth of his base salary. Yeah. I mean... He'll give it his all. He'll give him hell. But mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you know, um, even FAU is doing some initiatives in terms of NIL for their athletes that have been really impressive. It, Florida Atlantic's a weird one because you hear about programs that make a Final Four run and then where do they go? But for me, I'm like, you know, this might be a team who could stick around for yeah. a little bit. Uh, especially in Conference USA. But FAU is also the home of Lane Kiffin. Uh, He was there for, you know, the better part of four years and won 10 games twice as a football coach. And so they've kind of become an epicenter the last few years. I I find that unique. And storyline about this one is how they've taken a Conference USA school and made it bigger. What do you think, Hanwork? Yeah, it's just crazy and uh how like Florida Atlantic has done this year. I mean, 35 and 3, one of the best offenses 
uh, in all of college basketball. And what you mentioned, B-Rec, about like how some of these programs, they get to the Final Four like a Wichita State or a VCU, uh, and they just disappear. I agree with you that Florida Atlantic could be one of those teams that sticks around, and I think they're going to be really good again next year. So, And they have a great um, shot to beat uh, the San Diego State team in this uh, national semifinal game. I think in terms of the game, I agree with you, Jet. I think it's going to be a typical like 62-58 game. I think San Diego State's defense is going to be able to slow down uh, Florida Atlantic, and I think... Um, San Diego State is going to cover the spread in this one. B-Rec, did you give us an official pick? No, but I'm not going to. Okay. Well, we're going to move on to the prop bet for this game, and you mentioned John L. Davis for Florida Atlantic. Does he go over or under 13.5 points? Both of you guys can chime in on this one. Over. Under. Interesting. Why? Guard play, man. I mean, I just goes back to my whole point that I rattled on about um, in my spiel about why I think the results of the game is going to be what it's going to be. I do think he could score 11 or 12, though. I'm not saying he's getting gypped completely, but I don't think he hits that 14 mark. I think that when, say, under your explanation for what this game will be, yes, it will stay close. Yes. Within the four to like eight range, let's say. You got it, yep. If that's true, and FAU is looking at clawing back, and especially late, especially think about it from a late perspective. Yes. They're down a couple buckets. They need to find some rhythm. Who do they turn to? Three-point shooters. Okay. So it really just comes down to do those shots fall at the end of the game. Right. By your... Overtake. And if they do, which I think they will, and I think that's what the difference here is, is that he'll go over. Okay. He's a slasher, but he also has that that exterior shot. Too. Okay. So do you foresee the game playing out in a way that it would happen at the end where they need to rely on three pointers to come back? Yeah, I okay. do. Okay. I do. Uh or at least to maintain, you know, to, yes. to hang around. I think that there's a good chance that it becomes a, a three-point shooting contest a little bit up and down the floor, a um, little bit more of a track meet, at least late. I'm not sure. I can't guarantee that early, but I guess my argument with Florida Atlantic and Davis scoring more than 13-5 is that he'll be the key guy, and if no one else can score, then he may have to. Okay, I respect it. Yeah, it should be an interesting game between number nine, Florida Atlantic, and number five, San Diego State. Two mid-major teams going at it. We're going to move on to semifinal number two, number five, Miami, and number four, UConn. UConn is back in the final four for the first time since 2014. Well, Miami is a first-timer in the Final Four, along with uh, San Diego State and Florida Atlantic are also uh, first-timers in the Final Four. UConn's a five-and-a-half-point favorite in this one, so B-Rec and Jet, give us a prediction on this game, and what do you think the biggest key is going to be in this game? Well, UConn's awesome. UConn is just, just fantastic. Um, and... The reason I say that, I mean, there are many reasons I could say that, but 
especially given recency bias, what I would say is that UConn just took Gonzaga to the freaking watershed, man. I mean, that, that was a 30-point game for the majority of the second half. But what's interesting is is that was a four-point game, okay, 36-32, nearing the end of the first half. And you think, okay, well, Gonzaga's done enough to hang around. But then Timmy sits. So right as he subs off, um, UConn hits a three to close out the half, 39-32. Like, okay, well, it's seven. Still possible. But what we didn't realize is that Timmy was at three fouls through one half of play already. So few had to be a little bit more careful with his minutes. And so they were. But immediately coming out of halftime, he was called for his fourth foul. And this is a guy who against UCLA had 36 and 12. I mean, he's everything for Gonzaga. Um, when he was called for his fourth, he subbed off again. And UConn decided that, okay, well, now that the two-time West Coast Player of the Year is off the court, we're going to assert ourselves and take this game apart. So they ballooned their lead to 20. In literally, it was two minutes and 48 seconds. He was off the floor. And they went on a 16-3 run, up 7 to up 20. And when that happened, I went, okay, well, this might be a national champion. Um, The other thing that we talked about earlier at the outset of the podcast is we've noticed that UConn has been in the Final Four each of the last three times that it's been mucked up and weird in terms of the, the matchups we're seeing in the national semis. And... It's almost like program identity-wise, they enjoy being at a place where they can be the one traditional power amidst everyone else who's just there on account of positive circumstances. So I'm intrigued by that too. I think that as long as um, they keep Omier off the glass and turn Wong over because he is liable to... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he's liable to um, turn over the ball. He had three of them the other day. As long as they they put Omier in foul trouble and keep him off the glass and turn Wong over, which are three difficult things to do, but that's the recipe. Hawkins is a great player. Uh, Adama Sanogo is capable of winning the front court battle against anybody. And... Um, I'm going to go with UConn, and I'm going to say they win by more than five and a half. Interesting. Uh, man. UConn, I think this is their national championship to lose. I really do. And the way they played against Gonzaga was just unbelievable. There was a point in that Gonzaga game, Timmy goes out, he reaches his fourth foul, and I'm basically saying, well, that might be it for Gonzaga. And it truly showed as UConn went on that run. I think in this matchup, I think Miami's going to put up a fight. Um, I think Isaiah Wan and Jordan Miller and Omier, they're going to do a good job of uh, controlling uh, Sonogo and Hawkins for the most part. And I think this is going to be a classic uh, semifinal game. But I just think UConn, they're too dominant right now. I think they will find a way to uh, slow Miami down. I was going to take the under for this one. 
but I think I'm going to go the over now, uh, over five and a half points. I think this game, like with five minutes to go, five minutes to go, will be like a three-point game, and I think UConn is just going to finish the game strong, and they'll end up winning by like 10. I appreciate that. And you know what else I really enjoy about this matchup is the coaching matchup yeah. between Larinaga and, and Dan Hurley. I think that these are two guys who are old-fashioned by nature and don't deviate a whole lot from their kind of even-keeled mindset and attitude. They just stay level. They stay right at the midpoint. And um, when you're guiding teams and you're guiding teams who are, are young in some cases or have experienced turnover as Miami has where you add in a whole ton of people, uh, there is a a – Something to be said about what coaching experience and what that level of maturity from the coach's box has to say about a game like this. So that's another reason I'm really excited for it. Um, Before I just go ahead and pick UConn, let me give some credit to Miami. They made it to where they are with the hardest possible path they could have faced. Playing a 4, a 1, and a 2 and beating them all. And with that, um, by a good amount, honestly, um, except Texas, but, you know, seven-point win over Texas, I'd say, is very respectable at this point in the year. But, yeah, I'm going to have to agree. UConn's going to take this game. They've just they've been the scariest and hottest team all tournament. So I think they end up covering. I think they win this game by roughly seven points. And on top of that, this is a team that this is going to turn some heads as take, but this is a team that reminds me a lot of 2018 Villanova. Interesting. And it has nothing to do with the shooting. I think this team has depth. I think they have lots of players that can contribute at a solid level. Not a high level, but a solid level. And I think when it comes down to it in the national championship and this Final Four game, I think it's going to take them the whole way, and I think it'll take them over to San Diego State in the national championship. So Jet has UConn winning the national championship. I have UConn winning the national championship. Brian does the UConn win the national championship. Yeah, they do. Bold take, man. Yep. Isn't that just such a, a deviation from... Who would have thought? Yeah, yeah. Not me. Who could have said that? Here's another thing. Imagine we're totally wrong about this. San Diego State loses. UConn loses. FAU takes it all. We get FAU <laughs> Miami in the national championship for a Florida national championship. Could you imagine? When was the last time that two teams from the same state were in the national championship? I have no idea. I don't even. F- I feel like has that po- happened before? It's ha- had to happen at least once. It has to have happened with inside of California yeah. or Texas at some point. Because I thought for like years we were gonna we were gonna see Duke Carolina in the national championship until we saw them in the Final Four last year. When UTEP won the national championship, who was it that they played? I think they beat Kentucky. Okay, I don't know why I was thinking it was another Texas team. Yeah, I don't know though. That's an interesting stat. B Rec, you looking that up? The only years teams from the same state played in the national championship. We're in 1961 and 1962. Okay. Cincinnati beat Ohio State in both title games. Wow. That's, that is crazy. Wow. 
Unbelievable. Imagine if we got like a Cincinnati versus Xavier national championship, like the battle of Cincinnati. And then for Michigan, we got Michigan versus Michigan State. Oh my goodness. Two rivals going at it in the national championship. Or USC, UCLA. That too. Or or Duke, North Carolina. Right. Yeah. I mean, maybe we'll see that someday. That generates some money. That generate generate a lot of money. You think so? Just a bit. TV rights through the roof. I mean, if that happened, my guess is there would be an entire network just for that game. Yeah, absolutely. You well, know, State of Carolina basketball. Yes. Watch it here. I remember in uh, 2014, uh, the Final Four, because Michigan State and Michigan, they lost to the two teams that played for the national championship that year in UConn and Kentucky. We almost saw a Michigan-Michigan State national championship. We could have seen that. So maybe it will happen someday. And before we uh, wrap this thing up, uh, we have our final prop bet, Adama Sonogo. Does he go over or under 17 points and seven rebounds in this game, this final four game against Miami? Both of you can chime in on this one. This isn't a line I would personally touch if my cash was on the line, but I'm going to go with the over, and I think it is barely over if it is. Jed's eating the money over here. That ain't me. Money, money, money. That's you (laughs) eating, yeah. Money. Some people got to have it. Um, Okay, fine. I'll go with over too. Okay. I trust you. Okay. I trust you. Okay. Um, What worries me is is Hawkins getting going. Yeah. He scores over that's money and I don't, that over... Probably doesn't hit. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Um, and and like I said, I wouldn't touch this line personally because I think it's going to be very tight on that line. You know who was really good in the Elite Eight was um, was Carabon. Carabon was really good. He had twelve, four, and one on five of nine from the field. Sonogo had ten and ten, um, uh, and six assists. Which is weird. Hawkins had a big game too. Yeah, yeah. But Carabon was really good, and and I don't know. I I'll go with over, but I would be concerned about yeah. one of those other two lighting it up and then taking some points away from the big man. Yeah. Yeah. Be interesting to see if uh, Sonogo can get it going for UConn, and uh, they can get some uh, contributions from Hawkins and win that game against Miami, and uh keep their dreams alive for a national championship. The fourth one, I think, is since 1999, I believe. Or was it 98? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. that's right. So are we all in agreement that this national championship will be UConn SDSU? I would say yes. Yeah. That, That was a reluctant yeah. It was. It was. Why is that? I don't think we have enough time for that. Yeah. I would tend to agree with you. I would agree as well. FAU can knock it off, but um, or knock uh, SDSU out, but we'll have to wait and see. And that is all for Hedging the Bet. We hope to catch you next week for another exciting episode. Have a good one, guys. That is all from the Impact Sports Studio. You can catch us live Wednesdays at 3 p.m. on 88.9 The Impact for more collegiate sports betting analysis.